Hi, welcome to What Chance. I'm your host, Karin Elias. This podcast is about people who have been to prison. It's about their life before and after prison. I talk to educators, social workers, activists, and the formerly incarcerated. I want to find out what happened. Are some people at higher risk of going to prison? And what is it like to reintegrate into society? What does the justice system and society really care about? Punishment or rehabilitation? Come, join me. My guest today is Shawana Vaughn. She is a native of Bakersfield, California, and the mother of two. Shawana has experienced the loss of her brother to gang initiation violence and has overcome the pain and hardship of incarceration. She founded Silent Cry Inc., a New York-based nonprofit organization that takes a holistic approach to aftercare from mass incarceration, gun violence, and trauma. She is the author of Cries of Change, The Journey from Incarceration to Advocacy, and is now attending Columbia University. Welcome, Shawana. Thank you so much. Such a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So you wrote a book and you just went on a book tour, right? Yes, yes. I wrote Cries for Change. And it's an amazing story of incarceration advocacy and a journey of what that looks like. Is it based on your personal experience? It's all based on my personal experience. It's based on my life. It talks about, you know, being born in prison um, to a mother of substance abuse. We go through the journey of going to prison myself. And then what that looks like when you come out on the other side and, and advocate for decarceration and humanity and for people's mental health. I talk about my legislation, post-traumatic prison disorder, Shawana W76337. It's an amazing, amazing book. Yes, mental health is a big focus of yours, right? And maybe can you talk a little bit more about that? So mental health when somebody is incarcerated and also I think for the family members of a person that's incarcerated, right? Absolutely. Post-traumatic prison disorder is legislation that aims to address the ills of incarceration. We don't understand that when you take somebody out of their environment, whatever that environment is, it was normal for them. And when you put someone in prison, that is an abnormal environment that you cannot get ready for. There's nobody that can prepare you for that environment. It's a fight or flight environment, but on a daily basis. And so you realize that some people do not make it out of prison alive. Some people die in prison. Some people are murdered in prison. Uh, some people commit suicide in prison. There are a lot of variables. And what people don't understand is that, you know, usually you're, in prison, so in my prison that I was in, it was seven women to a room. So whatever happened to one woman affected six other people. 
And for some people incarcerated, they're in dorms with 25 people and upward. So what happens is traumatic for everybody. And there's no therapy. There's no therapeutic solutions. There's no trauma-informed therapist. There's no care. And how can you say correction or rehabilitation? Their mission statement is void. It's a place of survival of the fittest. And when you put someone in that atmosphere, how do you bring them home? They come home traumatized and they reenter society and they're not whole. And they can't function with their families. They have interpersonal relationships that are difficult. They have hypervigilance. They come home with things that they did not leave with on top of the stuff that they had on their way there because they, they went there with their adverse childhood experiences they went there with their own issues and they came out with more baggage because there was never any help. So it's almost like somebody committed a crime, right? And is now punished for the crime. And so punishment is the goal, not thinking about, well, rehabilitation would be a great goal because most people who are in prison come back out, right? And Absolutely. we're talking about recidivism rates. We don't want people going back in, right? And when they don't get any help. And so we're not just talking about help in terms of job training, right? Education, but it's really the mental aspect that doesn't allow us or does allow us to digest these experiences, right? Absolutely. So what do you feel could change inside prisons? I believe that if we are mandating therapy 14 days into incarceration, that we are mandating assessment by trauma-informed therapists that are competent and certified that we could change the narrative. And I believe that if we give guards therapy, they are not mandated to anything. They have to have therapy too, because they come into an environment daily and eventually they become the harmer as well. And so we have to create a therapeutic environment for people to work in, for people to have to stay in, because these people are coming back to society, not well. And I always ask people, How do you want your neighbor to show up? Because you never know where your neighbor came from. And if we do not treat incarceration as a mental health crisis, we will have a lot of people in our communities and our cities and our country that are not well. We have to get people on a road to normalcy as best they can. And without therapeutic measures, and I mean outside the box, No more textbook therapy, that doesn't work. I'm asking for alternatives to medication and non-traditional ways of healing. We have to meet an individual where they are to heal them at, at the point that they can be healed. And that looks different for each individual person in this world. So it sounds like to me, there's a certain mindset of people who are in charge of running prisons of how it should be. So one challenge is probably to change that mindset. And I'm sure money is part of the discussion, but I'm also imagining that if money is spent on mental health care, 
several positive things will result, right? Because you mentioned guards, and I'm sure guards have stress in prison because there's a lot of distrust. So if we had mental health services, there would be less stress for everybody in prison, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And Absolutely. then also, if the person is in, who is incarcerated gets a chance to work through some mental health issues, well, then their life would be very different when they come back. So whatever money we spend, I think we get back double, triple, I don't know, maybe even quadruple those benefits because we have a very different society after that. Absolutely. Absolutely we do. And so for you, you had your personal experiences with incarceration and then also, I suppose, with rehabilitation and with what was missing. And was that one of the reasons why you started your organization, Silent Cry? Absolutely. You know, um, absolutely. I started Silent Cry because I, I worked in programs and I said to myself, what does this look like done in a different lens from somebody who was formerly incarcerated? Because we have a lot of programs that are being ran and led and the people are not formerly incarcerated. We have a lot of programs that are ran by corporate white America. And corporate white America does not mean for anybody to be well. They mean for them to be rich. And so they're a contradiction of healing. They're a contradiction of therapy. I decided to create Silent Cry because I focus on gun violence, foster care, and mass incarceration. And I'm realizing that those are three areas of big business in this country. Like a lot of people get rich because of these three things. And how do we stop placing a dollar profit on human life? And how do we show compassion and care and concern for human life? And I said, you know, one person at a time, one person, one act at a time. And that's my motto. And that's what I live by. I can't fix the entire world, but one person at a time, we can make an impact. Silent Cry works with people who come back from being incarcerated, but also with families while their members are incarcerated? We actually work with um, people while they're incarcerated because some people need um, clemency packages. And so you have to write victim impact statements. And so I've been working with people to talk about their feelings because they can't write these statements until they acknowledge where they were at that time in their life to where they are now. And that takes a while. And so, you know, I engage them because you can't just start working somebody when they come home. Somebody has to work on them while they're in there. And that is what I, I've been doing is, you know, what is the plan? What are we going to do? How are we going to get home? What does that look like? What is your family structure? Who's at home? Um, and I try to meet people's families. So we know where we're going on this release date. And we know if people have thriving families, they're more likely to stay out. But when people have broken families, they're more likely to recidivism. And so we have to, you know, put things in place before people ever come home to make sure that they can stay home. 
that makes me also wonder, so somebody is incarcerated, what was their life like before? Because something was probably missing in terms of mental health care or education, or maybe they grew up in an area where their you know, family life wasn't strong enough or there was poverty. Are those all contributing factors? Absolutely, those are all contributing factors. Systemic racism, systemic poverty, lower wages for Black people who work. We're very clear what that looks like. And addiction and mental health are such a problem. And it's not a Black problem. It's a everybody color problem. And we are treating mental health. We're, we're putting people in prison. We're treating poverty by punishment. We're treating substance abuse without programming. And we're putting people in prison. That is not the rehab. Prison is not a mental health facility. Prison is not where you send people in poverty because they stole food. Prison is now the new catch-all for everybody, for everything. It's the new mental hospital. It's the poverty center. It's everything. We criminalize everything that white America does not like. That is just what it is. Everything that doesn't fit in the box that they need goes to prison. So then the person is in prison and comes back out to the same surroundings. That's a huge challenge, right? That is one of the biggest challenges is people, places, and things. And so when you come back to your environment and you can't, because of economics or whatever it is, you can't leave that environment. It leads you back to old people, old places, and old things which leads you back to prison. And so this is why I'm saying we have to work on shifting the mindset while people are incarcerated. We have to give them options for a way out once home. And maybe they have to relocate. Maybe they can't live in that same place. We have to tell parole. They have to have a way of escape. They have to have a way to move and, and to better themselves. You can't keep them bound in this neighborhood because they, they came from here and they have to parole here. All the systems have to be reformed, if that's even possible. How do you reform something that's doing what it actually, they want it to do? How do we replace systems? Yeah, that makes me think, so we can talk and you know have all kinds of programs for people to work on themselves. But we know how hard it is. Just think about somebody says, I want to stop eating ice cream on a daily basis, or I want to stop drinking so much coffee, or I want to stop smoking. And those are small problems compared to what people are dealing with once they're incarcerated, right? So um, yes, we can say it's all on them. They have to work on themselves, but there needs to be help coming from other ways also. Absolutely. And do you feel, so you mentioned you wanted there to be a shift inside prisons, more mental health care. Do you feel that whoever runs the prison system is listening? Prison is a billion-dollar industry, and nobody wants to let go of a billion-dollar industry. So it's actually really hard to change the way prison works because you can't take away the factor that humans are making the Dow Jones run from a prison industrial complex. And so 
when you tell a capitalist, we're going to take away your money, it's like telling a slaveholder, we're going to emancipate slaves. This is it. It's the revolt. Because this is new slavery. The prison industrial complex. And it's, it's making the Dow Jones run. It, it's making companies run. So how do we change something that is fueling the economy around the world? Prison, America incarcerates more people than anywhere in the world. I mean, they make parts for AutoZone, Victoria's Secret. Everybody is profiting off of prison for cheap labor. We no longer have to go overseas. We look to prison for, for labor. We're releasing convict labor. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I think that people who have not had any contact with people who are incarcerated, who don't know anybody, are kind of not sure they should believe this because they don't see this. How does it work? So people in prison work for companies? Absolutely. Ashley Furniture has prison labor. AutoZone has prison labor. McDonald's French fries, prison. Starbucks coffee beans, bagged in prison. Prison is fueling everything we eat, drink, drive, license plates, Hanes underwear. Like prison is being contracted to do all these jobs where they don't have to pay the American citizen. The jobs didn't go overseas. The jobs went to prison. They don't have to pay incarcerated people a living wage. Yeah. And of course, that could be, that could be changed. What would be if they would pay people a living wage? Then, you know, I guess the complex wouldn't run the way it likes to be run. Absolutely. So it does sound like if there are so many people benefiting from the system, it's going to be very hard to change. So really it's sounds like the best chance is the individual person. Like you said before, you are going to focus on one person at a time. Absolutely. And what have you seen with the programs that you offer? What have you seen in terms of what's successful? What's successful is that I've seen people come home and get jobs and get off parole and not go back. Um, that we've been able to meet the need of clothing, of food, of, of referral services for counseling, that we've been able to meet the need for family reunification. And I believe these things work. I believe that, you know, giving people the tools they need in the moment for the long term is needed. And so what you offer, are those programs free? Yes. And I suppose you have to deal with fundraising then. Yes, fundraising, funders, trying to find money that is not attached to the prison industrial complex, which is a whole another conversation. But there's a lot of money out here that is tied to people who invest in prison. And... For me, that's a contradiction. And so it's hard for, for my organization to find money. I don't take, you know, corporate big money. And so I've just, you know, I, I really pride myself on 
a dollar at a time or five dollars from a person makes a difference. So I try to find people that really care about humanity. And I just want to go back to something you said earlier, because you mentioned foster care. Um, because foster care sounds like it could be a way out for some people who maybe lost their parents or whose parents can't take care of themselves. But you think there are some issues around foster care also? Foster care is a breeding ground for sex trafficking. Foster care is a breeding ground for prison. Foster care is a breeding ground for homelessness. When you have foster care parents who have to take parenting classes, right? In order to get a foster care license, why would you take a child out of a home and never give that parent parenting classes? Why would you not try everything you can do on the front line to keep these children in their homes? Nobody said foster care was bad. And I don't think we do that. We do not do that at all. We, we take children out of homes and we put them in places. And when they age out at 18, they have no money, nowhere to fall back and no guidance. That is unacceptable. That is unacceptable that you would take somebody's child, give a person money to take care of that child and give that child nothing at 18. And they become homeless and they go back into the shelters. And those children, some of them, listen, Atlanta just published there was a judge sending the kids to this group home where they were being sex trafficked. Because these are the kids that were forgotten about. Not by the families, but by the system. I think that you need to do everything that you need to do to keep children in their home. And that's not being done. Because that is not what capitalists do to keep money and to keep jobs. So we're snatching children. And, and, and I just, I don't believe in kidnapping. I believe that the foster care is a kidnapping system. It's easy to get them out of the home. It's hard to get your children back. They make you do things that, that you would not normally ever have to do to get your children back. But what did you do to keep me with my child? Nothing. So it sounds again like there is an issue of mindset and money because yes. mindset saying, you know, I can spend money either on taking the kids away and letting them live with other people that I screen, but, you know, I have not really much control over, or I could spend the money and help the biological parents to become more functional parents. Absolutely. I do believe that there are some parents that need more help than others. And then there's some parents who just, the best thing for their child is to be with somebody else. But how do we vet the somebody else? And did we try everybody in their family before we exacerbated and put them with strangers? And you had mentioned earlier that you were born in prison. Yes. So does that mean you couldn't live with your biological mother? Absolutely. I, I was um, in the foster care system. Um, and unfortunately, you know, I was in one home where that's not the norm for a lot of young people. That's not their norm. I got to go to school from one home. I got to, you know, graduate elementary and junior high and high school from one place. But that's not the norm. When you say that's not the norm, 
it is usually the case or say very often the case that children move from home to home but what's the reason for that well i have you know my my other two sisters my middle sister my younger sister they were in the foster care system together and they were moved from home to home to home to uh transitional houses or whatever they're they're considered and they're aged out with nothing you know where one decided to make good choices and went to the military the other one didn't and you know lives on her own terms and that's fine but the system did not help them to be better stronger people it gave them it gave them nothing. I believe that the foster care system should have bank accounts for these young people so that when they are 18, they are not homeless. The foster care check should not go to the parent, the foster care person. That They should not get all of that money. There should be a bank account for these young people and they should have money management classes. They should have life skill classes, but they get none of that. So I'm thinking, you know, most people, let's say you have biological children, I do have them and they are in their 20s. They're still my children. We're still in contact. I can still help them. But in the foster care system at age 18, unless a good, develop, a good relationship has developed between foster parents and foster care children, it could be just cut off. And um, they might not have had, exactly. you know, I don't know how, how education works when you are moved from one home to another. Not only do you make uh, emotional connections or, you know, with the parents as you stay with a family, but you also make connections to friends and, mm. you know, in schools. But if you're moved around, you have to start over every time right and it's harder at certain ages absolutely it's emotionally crippling it's mentally exacerbating and who picks up the tab on these young people's lives i mean do we feel that as humanity we owe them nothing they're moved and bounced and placed and placed and they didn't ask for any of it where is the stability for them and, you know, I am wondering about your own personal development because you are, you have experienced some hardship, but you also must have worked a lot on yourself to stabilize yourself after all these experiences. What has worked for you? I know that therapy is a must. I know that healing hurts. I know that healing does not feel good and it is not an overnight process and it is a daily work in progress and and that is what i have tried to do is to know that you cannot be healed overnight and i take the journey as it comes but you know healing hurts and to understand that healing just in itself is a journey but i've done therapy i've rode horses i've then activities, vision boards. Um, I've done a plethora of things to get healed and to work on myself. And all of it combined works. 
uh, faith works, but you have to have faith along with medical trained professionals because black people as, as a whole older black people don't believe in psychiatrists and therapists. And we have to break that stigma in our communities. Silence is complicit and silence is violence. And we have to tell if it hurts, tell it. If they did it, say it. We cannot get healed unless we, we, we tell. And so, you know, black people are like the military, don't ask, don't tell. And, and we keep all the things to ourselves and in secret. And all that plays out in your life, in your body, in your health. No, we cannot heal as a community, as a society, unless we are helped. And so I really want to break the stigma for Black America that we all come to terms with we all need help. Yeah, it sounds like when you are in an environment that's not supportive, at some point you feel so powerless that you start to shut down and you don't really trust probably anymore either. And you might not even go ask for help because your experience was you're not going to get it. So now you have to break through that. And I think it's probably harder the older people are and the longer they have lived this experience. Absolutely. So for your organization, Silent Cry, what are you looking forward to in the next, let's say, two or three years? I want to have a foundation that is functionally as an alternative for incarceration. I'm actually looking to get up by a farm and I want to use it as a ground to house young people that are aging out of foster care, to treat people that are formerly incarcerated, and as a tool to cut down on poverty nature as healing but also self-sufficiency absolutely and community i suppose because if you have a farm right people live in community and work together for yourself and for your book um, where can people buy your book you can reach me on my website at um, silentcryinc.org i will mail you a copy and you can pay online. It will currently be on Amazon next week. Um, so next week you can purchase it on Amazon. Well, that sounds exciting. It's a really a great accomplishment for you to have you done so all of that and write a book. And yeah, did you enjoy the book tour? Yes, I did. Yes. I plan on going to California to do one is when COVID calms down. Well, I wish you the best and, you know, stay healthy and be well. And thank you very much. It was amazing. Thank you so much. And thank you for all you do, sharing people's stories and changing the narrative one person at a time. You're very welcome. What chance? is created in New York with cover art by Hernan Brabermann and original music by Max Elias.